you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we continue in a sermon series entitled, A Church Looking for Jesus. A Church Looking for Jesus. Paul wanted the church at Thessalonica to be a church looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope when we're through with this series that Miles Road Baptist Church more so would be a church looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because whether we're looking or not, he is coming again. Do you understand that? Those who are looking will not be caught off guard. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at all 12 verses, but for our scripture reading, we'll begin with the first four verses. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the believers in Thessalonica. Verse 1, Paul and Silas and Timothy. Unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is necessary. Because that your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds. So that we ourselves glory in you. We take pride in you when we go to the other churches of God. Because you exhibit patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now the message this morning might seem to be a little disjointed. But I promise if you'll hang with me, it'll all come together. Because I'm going to start talking about truth. And then I'm going to start talking about persecution and judgment. And then I'm going to go to prayer. So you got to stay awake if you want to know the prayer part. Okay? So I promise you we're going to get there. The first thing I'd like to do this morning, though, as we start, is make five factual statements to you about truth. You might say, truth about truth. Truths about truth. So here's the five things I want you to remember about truth. Number one, truth is learned and it's retained by multiple exposures. You learn truth initially you retain truth continually by being exposed to it constantly. Once is not enough when it comes to truth. Truth is learned by repetition. Repetition is necessary to learn truth. Now I say that to say this. If you read the Apostle Paul's writings, and by the way, he wrote over half the New Testament, you'll notice that he pretty much says the same thing over and over and over again. In Colossians, he says it one way. In Ephesians, he says it another. In Philippians, he'll say it that way. In Thessalonians, he'll say it this way. But when you capsulize it and boil it all down, he's saying the same thing. 
Now, you might have thought he was senile because old people tend to say the same things over and over. But he wasn't senile. He's smart. He knows that you learn truth by repeating it over and over and over again to people so that it can sink in deeper and deeper and deeper to people. Truth number two about truth. Truth is absorbed by different people in different ways at different times and different speeds. The Bible calls us to be unified, but the Bible does not call us to be uniform. You see, when God made you and God made me, he made us all different. Some of us are fast learners. Some of us are slow learners. Some of us catch on very quickly. Some of us, we have to be around it a while before we catch on. Everybody's equal, but we're all different. And when it comes to truth, some people can catch it real quick. Other people have to think about it and process it. Other people, it takes a period of time. Some people perhaps never get it, and that's okay. Everybody's different. We all learn in different ways at different times and different speeds. Now, when it comes to the Bible, that's particularly true. When it comes to some of the great doctrines and theologies of the Bible, that's true. When it comes to the second coming of Jesus, that's true. I don't know where you're at in the learning curve. Maybe you're just a freshman. <laughs> Maybe you're a sophomore. Maybe you're a junior. Maybe you're a senior about to graduate. By the way, you know where you graduate through, don't you? Don't be afraid. It's heaven. But, but we're all learning, but some of us learn at different rates and different speeds and different ways. But if you'll be patient, if you'll be persistent, if you'll persevere, I promise you, you'll learn more today than you knew yesterday. And you'll learn more tomorrow than you know today. I used to coach football. And we would have freshmen come out for the football team. Now, freshmen don't know a whole lot about football sometimes. So when you give them certain drills to do, they don't do them very well. But they get better at it. Some of them learned their freshman year how to do them all the drills and how to do them well and how to apply them to the games. Some of them don't learn a whole lot their freshman year, but they learn their sophomore year. Others learn it their junior year. Some of them it takes a senior year before they really catch on to it all. And some of them still don't get it. But that's okay. As long as you're patient, persistent, and you persevere through it, you're going to learn more about it. Okay? Number three thing about truth. Truth can be forgotten in time of crisis. The things that we hold so near and dear in peace can sometimes be forgotten in war. The things that we know to be true in tranquility, we sometimes can forget when trouble comes. Somebody has wisely said, it's hard to remember your task was draining the swamp when you're up to your neck in water surrounded by crocodiles. 
see, sometimes we can just forget those. That the, the Christ is there in the crisis. But if you forget it, don't worry. He'll remind you. And he'll still be there and it'll all work out. But understand, don't be hard on yourself if you tend to forget things in a crisis. That's normal. That's natural. Truth number four. Truth is always under attack by the devil. The devil is a liar. That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus said of him. He's a liar. And he constantly is trying to gain control of our mind that he might put his propaganda into our mind and deceive us. The devil would much rather put dope in your head than put dope in your arm. Because dope in your arm will kill you physically, dope in your head will kill you eternally. The devil has a, a mode of operation, by the way. It's never changed. It's to deceive people that he can destroy people, that he can damn people. That's the way he works. And it's all about getting control of your mind. And that's why truth today is under attack everywhere. The devil wants to poison your mind that he can poison your future. And that's why there are agents of confusion out there. And there's agents of confusion, sadly to say, in the church today. Messing with people's minds about what is true. Truth is always under attack. And then lastly, the fifth thing about truth that I want you to remember is this. Truth is like a turtle. It moves very slowly. Lies are like a hare. They move very fast. Somebody has wisely said, a lie can be halfway around the world before truth gets up and puts its britches on. But, Lies do not last long. Eventually, they're seen as a lie. The truth will just keep on going. And eventually, the truth will catch up to the lie, and the truth will win. Now, why do I say all of this? You say, Pastor, because you're getting senile too. <laughs> no. I'm saying this to you because... What 1st and 2nd Thessalonians is all about is the truth of the second coming of Jesus. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1, if you would. I want you to notice that a word is there. And to you who are troubled. Okay, you see that word troubled? Now I want you to go to chapter 2, verse 2. That ye not be shaken in mind or be troubled. Now both of those words troubled have an interesting meaning when you go to the original language. They mean to be confused, to be perplexed, to be struggling in one's mind and heart about something that one thought was true, but now you have doubts about it. Did you catch that? That word trouble means that one time you had certain things that you knew were true. You were convinced of them. They were absolutes. They were convictions. But now, because of somebody's influence, 
becomes, because of some situation or circumstance that's going on in your life, that truth is now in doubt. It's, you're confused, you're perplexed, you're asking yourself the question, have I been taught incorrectly in the beginning? The church at Thessalonica, the Christians who were Thessalonians in that church, had been taught the truth about the coming of Jesus by the Apostle Paul. He taught them about the tribulation period that's coming. He taught them about the Antichrist that we're going to talk about tonight. He taught them about the, the rapture of the church. He taught them about the coming of Christ with the church. He taught them all of that stuff. He taught them the truth. But as soon as Paul left the church, guess what happened? Ignorant teachers started teaching Sunday school. They were sincere, but they were ignorant. They didn't understand eschatology, the end times. And so they started teaching the people things that were incorrect. And false preachers came into the pulpit. And they began teaching things about the second coming of Jesus that was incorrect. People in the pews started taking the things that they knew to be true and started twisting him a little bit, modifying them a little bit, expanding them, taking away from them. In other words, they were sowing their opinions in to what the Bible said, what Paul had said. And so as Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians, he's saying, listen, the truth is important, and many of you have lost it. I want you to get it back. Do you know that they were teaching in the church at Thessalonica that the persecution that some Christians were going through meant that the great tribulation had arrived? That the suffering that the church was experiencing, the persecution that some of the believers were experiencing, was because the great tribulation, the seven years where hell comes to earth, and the demonic trio comes, had begun. That was being taught in the church. Also being taught in the church was the Antichrist had come. And he was Caesar. The Antichrist was Nero. Also being taught in the church was that everybody had been left behind. That Jesus had come, took out a select few, an elite group, the Green Berets, you might say, and left everybody else to fend for themselves. He forgot and forsake his own. Furthermore, they were teaching that you better stock up on your goods. You better store away your weapons. You better stash away your money. And you better flee to the hills so you can survive all of this. That's what was being taught. Paul taught none of it when he was there. But Paul's truth had been forgotten. And now all of this stuff had been brought in. And so Paul writes to them a letter of correction he wants to get them to know the truth concerning Jesus' return. And by the way, that wouldn't be a bad idea for us either. Because I can tell you the second coming of Jesus is not talked about much anymore. 
There's very few churches that preach it. There's very few ministers who preach it. Most of God's people haven't got a clue about it. I'm telling you it is a theological priority that we understand we're living in the final days of history. Jesus is coming. He's coming. Now, before we get to how we should pray, if indeed he's coming, and he is, I want us to look at verses 5 through 10. Because Paul is going to chase a little rabbit before he goes to prayer. You see, I chase rabbits occasionally. Why do I do it? Because Paul did it. <laughs> no. I will. But notice what he's going to talk about in verses 5 through 10. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to see he's going to talk about the suffering and persecution of the church and its people. And then he's going to talk about the judgment of God against those who cause the suffering and persecution. Let's pick it up at the end of verse 4. He says, In all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God, to recompense, now pay attention to that word, recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In a flaming fire, he shall take vengeance on them that know not God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, look at that verse. Who shall be punished. These ones who have done this shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When will this take place? When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. Now Paul wants to remind the church at Thessalonica that suffering and persecution are not necessarily a sign that you are in the great tribulation. Now, there will be great suffering and persecution in the tribulation. But there's also going to be great suffering and persecution for the people of God and the churches of God long before then. Do you understand that? Once again, the church today is not properly taught that what, re what the rest of the world is experiencing who claim the name of Jesus, we are going to experience. We're different, are we not? When Jesus saves you, he doesn't make you perfect. What he does is makes you different. When I got saved at age 24, he didn't make me perfect. I'm not perfect, and nor are you. But I'm different. And I'm constantly being transformed in that difference to be like Jesus, as you are. Now, because we're different, the world hates us. The world says it likes diversity, but the world does not like diversity. The world likes everybody to cross their T's and dot their I's and loop their L's just like they do. We're twice-born people living in a once-born world. 
We're light living in darkness. We're salt living in decay. We're different. And because we're different, the world hates us and is increasingly hating us. In fact, we're being scapegoated in many places for all the problems in this country and around the world. Should that surprise us? No. Jesus said, the servant will not be greater than the master. When Jesus came to this world, he was different. And what did this world do to him? They nailed him on a cross and got rid of him. And what's this world going to do to you and I one day? Nail us to a cross and get rid of us. Our world does not like people who are different. And we're different. Therefore, we can expect suffering and persecution. You say, well, pastor, I haven't experienced any. That's okay. Batten down the hats. It's coming. America has long been an island of safety surrounded by oceans of danger. That day is over. Terrorism is coming to America. And persecution is coming to the American church. 25% of our fellow Christians scattered around the world live in persecution. They're suppressed. They cannot worship publicly. They have to be in, in underground churches. They have no human rights. They're abused terribly. They're beaten continually. They are put in jail and allowed to rot in jail with no charges, no trial. And many of them are just put to death simply because they love Jesus. And one day, it may well be that we will as well. It's coming. Why should we think we're going to escape what the rest of the world's already experienced? So suffering and persecution are part of the Christian life. Do you understand that? I don't want you to be surprised when it comes. I want you to say, I heard Pastor Jim say that November 22nd, 2015. I hope it doesn't, but I'm just telling you, according to the scriptures, it's coming. And then... I want you to understand something else. That in that, we are going to get rest. Eventually, we're going to find rest from the suffering and persecution. Do you notice it says in verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us. That word rest is an interesting word. It means that there will come a day when... The, the terror that you are going through, the trouble you're going through, the tribulation you're going through is going to end. You are going to be rescued and delivered. That's what that word means, to be rescued and delivered. I guess the best picture I could draw of that for you would be when the Allied forces were marching toward Germany and they entered Germany and they began to approach some of the concentration camps where hundreds and thousands of millions of people were herded into those camps like cattle and were brutally treated and murdered. Well, as the Allied forces approached, their Nazi guards retreated and left. So when the Allied troops arrived, 
They came into a camp filled with hundreds if not thousands of people who were walking skeletons. But guess what? They had been delivered. They were now in the hands of people who had loved them and helped them. And ladies and gentlemen, one day, we're going to be delivered. Not the allies, but Jesus is coming. And he's going to deliver his people and his churches from those that have oppressed them and brutalized them. He's coming. And he's going to give rest to those who have asked for a long time, where are you, Lord? And all we've heard is nothing. One day we're going to hear, he's coming. He's coming. And we're going to be set free. And when he comes, ladies and gentlemen, not only will he give us rest and reward who have been suffered and have been persecuted, but he's going to bring justice, according to verses 6 through 9, to those who did it. There is a payday for those who break the laws of God. There is a payday for those who brutalize the people of God. There is a payday for those who attack the church of God. There is a payday for those who mock Jesus Christ. There is a payday. It may not be today or tomorrow or next week or next month, but listen, there is a payday. There is a payday. That word recompense that you looked at in verse 6, that means to pay back as justice. God doesn't just arbitrarily punish people. He's a God of law and he's a God of order. And when his laws are broken, he serves justice on those who do it. Okay? A judge who would allow someone who's guilty to walk away unpunished is as guilty as the violator. And God is a judge. To those that are not his own, he's a judge. Not a savior, a judge. And he will one day bring judgment against those who have done wrong toward him and his people and his church. And part of that judgment is another thing you won't hear in many churches today. It's hell. We don't hear much about Jesus coming again. And we bear very little about hell. Now I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But I believe if it's in the word of God, it needs to be taught and preached. God's called me to teach you the whole word of God, not just what I want to do or what you want me to do. And in verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction? This is the word of the Lord from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is speaking of those who break his laws and abuse his people and his church. Justice is coming. Payback is coming. And it will be in a place called hell. You say, I don't believe in it. Then you must not believe in heaven. You see, if you believe there's a, a place called heaven that's upward, you've got to believe there's a place on the opposite end called hell that's downward. Hell is real. Do you know that? It's very real. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a fiction it's not a fairy tale it's a real place just like Somerville South Carolina is real the Bible tells us that hell is a prison it's a prison it was originally created for the devil and his demons 
But if you choose to go with them, you will go there too. People think they will laugh on their way to hell. And they might. But they won't laugh their way out of hell. It's a prison where you have an eternal death sentence for me. There's no probation. There's no parole. There's no politicians who are going to grant you leniency or pardon. When you arrive, you will be there forever, endeavor, 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 endeavor. It's a miserable place. Jesus said of hell, this is Jesus, not me, this is what Jesus said. He said it's a place where the fires burn but never consume, and the maggots eat but they never consume. Those who are there will be constantly subjected to the burning fires and to the eating of the maggots, but their being will never be consumed. It's a confining place. You will not be that. You might be there with millions of other people, but you'll never see them. You'll be in your own little place of darkness and loneliness and confinement. Can you imagine being in a place where the sun never shines? It's pitch black darkness. Where you'll never talk to another person. Can you imagine a place where you can't move? You're, you're like in a coffin. like putting a great white shark in a bathtub or an eagle in a parakeet cage or a stallion in your backyard. Those are animals that were made for liberty and to run. And so did God make us that way. But if we reject God, then we will go to a place where we'll be lonely and dark and confined. And it's forever. See, we, we always think that there's an end to something. There is no ending. It's forever. Jesus said these words, Matthew 13, 49 and 15. So shall it be at the end of the world when the angels shall come forth and, sep and separate the wicked from among the just. And the wicked shall be cast into the furnace of fire. And there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Johnny Carson invited Billy Graham to his late-night television show when Johnny had one and he was alive. And during one of the breaks, Johnny Carson bent over to Billy Graham and said, You know, if Jesus comes again, I believe we'll do him in just like we did before. And Billy Graham whispered into Johnny Carson's ear, He is coming again. And you won't do him in, he'll do you in. Because when he comes again, he will not be coming as a baby. He'll not be coming as a teacher. He'll not be coming as a martyr. He'll be coming as the son of the living God. The lamb who came the first time will come as a lion the second time. The one who came to save whosoever will will come to bring judgment on whosoever didn't. Now, let's look at what, in closing, there's just a few minutes left. How should we pray then? 
as we see this day a coming, Jesus is coming again. As we learn the truth about his coming, not what the ignorant are saying, not what the foolish are saying, not what the, the unbelievers are saying or the deceivers are saying. As we learn the truth about his coming, how should we pray? Should it change the way we pray? Verse 11 and 12, let's look at the three ways it should change. Wherefore, also we pray always for you. Paul says we pray for you. As you're going through this suffering and persecution, as you're looking for the coming of Jesus, and yet you're being confused and troubled by all these adversaries. He said, this is what we pray for you for. This is how you should pray for yourself. This is how you should pray for others. He says, first of all, in verse 11, he says, count you worthy. I pray that our God would count you worthy of his calling. Now that phrase, count you worthy of his calling, speaks of, of not being pulled away from the paths in which you walk. I want you to imagine a track. Many of you have been to perhaps have run track or been to a track, and you notice that on a track there's different lanes. Okay, if you go to Charleston Southern, sometimes from the road, they're doing a great reconstruction job there. But you'll notice their track has been, the lines have been redone. There's nine lanes there. And what Paul's prayer is, is that, that we would be counted worthy by God because we're staying in the lanes. We're walking in the paths of love, righteousness, and truth. We're not moving out of our lane. We're staying in the lane. Okay? It's a prayer for dedication. That we'll be dedicated to love and righteousness and truth. Love in a world of hatred. Righteousness in a world of, of wickedness. Truth in a world of lies. That we'll stay the course in those things. Okay? That we're not going to change lanes as many are doing. We'll stay the course. And then he says in verse 11 something else. He not only talks about a prayer of dedication that will say that we'll stay the course, but he talks about a prayer for deeds. Notice in verse 11, he now is going to bring up another word. Follow with me, please. Help me. I've got glasses on. They're getting a little foggy. I pray that you will fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the play of faith with power. What are y'all looking at me for? Oh, I'm sorry. I must have misstated it. And the work of faith. Does Bible have work? Shake your head if it does. Work. The work of faith with power. So Paul says, as you see the coming of Jesus, as you're going through suffering and persecution, pray that you'll be dedicated, that you'll stay on course, that you'll stay in your lane, that you won't forsake or, or forget or, or, or be moved off love, righteousness, and truth. And then he says, pray for your work, your deeds. And what he's talking about here is the fundamentals. The fundamentals. As a football coach, we constantly taught fundamentals to the players. I didn't care if we had any trick formations. 
I didn't care what glitz and glamour was going on with uniforms and all these other little things. You cannot win at football unless you can block and tackle. Amen? You can't win at basketball unless you can dribble and pass and shoot. You can't win at baseball unless you can catch and throw and, and hit. Every great sport that has a great champion has champions that practice the fundamentals. If you go to Nick Saban's practice at the University of Alabama, you know what you're going to see? Blocking and tackling. The great teams emphasize the basics over and over and over again because if they don't, you forget them. And what Paul is saying here is pray for your works that you will constantly be doing the fundamentals. You'll be worshiping. You'll be serving. You'll be giving. You'll be witnessing. You'll be praying. You'll be studying your Bibles. You'll be fellowshipping. You'll be carrying on with the things that make people great and churches great. Sadly, we live in a world where everybody wants to, to follow the fads and the trends. I can't tell you how many fads and trends have come down the pipeline in the 22 years that I've been here. And you know what I do with every one of them? I practice my three-point shooting into the trash can. Because what is a fad today will be forgotten tomorrow. But what's the fundamentals of today will always be the fundamentals. So as Jesus is coming again, as we face suffering and persecution, we have to stay dedicated. We pray for dedication that we'll stay on the course. We pray for our works that we will carry on the fundamentals and not get sidetracked. And then he says one other thing. He, said he prays for our demeanor in verse 12. He says that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying to be like Jesus. Be dedicated. Stay on course. Have the deed. Carry on. And have the demeanor. As you're doing all of that, look, look like Jesus. Be so close to Jesus that people look at you and you remind them of Jesus. Now, I'm going to close with this and time is out. Why are those prayers for how we should behave important? Why should, did Paul just arbitrarily pick these prayers out because he didn't have nothing else to pray for? No, he's praying under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to those and to us. Why should we pray that we stay on course? Why should we pray that we carry on the fundamentals? Why should we pray that we look like Jesus? In closing, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just peek over there for just a moment. In verse 3, there's an interesting phrase. The day of the Lord shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, falling away. 
Because what he's saying is just before Jesus comes, and by the way, he's coming, there is going to be a very obvious falling away of churches and so-called Christians. That word falling away is an interesting word. It speaks of a departure, a departure, not physically, but theologically from the things of God. What Paul is saying, there's coming a day when those who should be on course are going to drift off. Some are going to drift over just one lane, some two lanes, some three lanes, and some will even go off the track with their craziness. There's coming a day when the fundamentals of the faith are going to be forgotten and neglected and people are going to be laughed at who do them. And there's going to come a day when nobody will look like Jesus anymore. Because he ain't no big deal. That's what he's saying. That's why his prayer is for you and me, and I pray for me, and you pray for you, and we pray for one another. That that won't happen to us. Because there's coming a day when worship will be self-centered. Service will be when I feel like it on my own terms. Giving will be leftovers. Witnessing will be forbidden. The church will be abandoned. Jesus will be denied. Ministers will be hirelings. Holiness will be no more, unnecessary. And the Bible, well, it's a relic of the past. you know that day is coming? May I make a su suggestion? Maybe it's already here. Maybe it's already here. And most people don't even know it. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.